Welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast, everyone. Coming at you today for episode 25, we're starting into Foundryside by Robert Jackson Bennett. I'm your host, as always, Rob Santos, joined today by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And for today, it's actually just the two of us. So we had a special guest planned, of course, but scheduling problems came up as, you know, as they do. And uh, we hope to have them on for the next episode for the finale. Um, but for now, uh, really, without much further ado from me at the moment, I'm going to pass off to Drew here so that we can get a recap of what we've read so far. Uh, yeah, so we're reading, uh, well, we read and we'll be discussing uh, parts one and two of Foundry Side by Robert Jackson Bennett. Uh, it's a relatively new uh, fantasy yeah, novel. Yeah, I, I think it is, eh? Yeah, it came out just last year. It's it's up for a couple of awards in 2019 this year, and, and let me tell you, I, I think it deserving of those nominations so far um so this is a, a you know fantasy series uh or the first in a fantasy series uh i believe the second book is planned for later this year um yeah august but I it, think it, it takes place in a in a kind of pseudo italian fantasy city called tavan uh it's it's a kind of a lawless city split up among four uber rich like merchant houses and then the rest of the city is just utter anarchy and uh, uh, our main character is a young girl named Sanchia who is a thief uh, lives in the commons outside you know, unaffiliated with any of the campos as they're called um, and her, her whole thing is that she is a, a unique magically altered human being with uh, the, this magic in, in this book called scribing where basically they can create sigils and runes and things that convince objects to act uh, according to whatever nature the scribers want. And uh, and Sanchia has a scribed plate in her brain uh, that allows her to do all kinds of crazy things um, that, that helps her, you know, be a better thief. Yeah. And the, the story opens with her taking a very dangerous job uh, to steal a safe and deliver it to an unknown patron and uh, it would pay very handsomely but of course things don't go according to plan. Sanchia opens the safe discovers that what is in it is a key that can open anything and it will talk to her and, and it's uh, it's named Clef C-L-E-F uh, and, and I think uh, you know, there's some some parallels that we're going to be talking about later in this episode with, with yeah. Clef. Um, I'm sure there are. Yeah, maybe another book that we've already read on the podcast. Uh, but anyway, so she's the main character, but we also have uh, some points of view from a guy named Gregor Dandolo, who is the uh, only surviving son of one of the Campo houses, one of these four merchant houses, and he's a, a sort of upright man of justice, trying to establish a police force in the city and establish laws and things to make it more civilized um and then we also have uh, some some bits and pieces from a a genius scriber named orso and his assistant uh berenice so uh they they all get embroiled together in, in a, a campo uh intrigue essentially where one of the other houses has discovered this ancient uh technology like uh they're they're called the hierophants they were advanced scribers. They could do things that nobody today can do, and uh, they're trying to recreate some of that technology and, uh, and and basically take over the city and potentially the world. And where we left off, um, uh, the the group of 
uh, Orso and Berenice and Gregor and Satya uh, has hatched a plan to break into the mountain, the big fortress of this other Campo house, and steal their uh, technology to prevent them from, you know, uh, taking over. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So it's good to know that I that I uh, you know absorbed the vast majority of it. Again, once of course I'm reading primarily on audiobook, which has a lot of its own drawbacks. But um, I did actually buy the text today. I bought it on my e-reader because there was about I don't know. I was somewhere around. I was pacing myself throughout the week to to end up you know around the halfway point is what I expected. And then it <laughs> yeah. wasn't until this morning when I when I looked at it. I think it was late last night. I looked at it and I was like, oh crap. I mean, we're at. I'm in chapter 17 and I'm already halfway through. So I, I believe it is 63% of the way through the book uh, where we left off. I did the math with the audiobook and it was uh, to me it worked out to like 66.7. So it was like exactly to the two-thirds point, but I didn't actually look at what it was on the uh, the e-reader. It could there could just be some discrepancies there, but it was for all intents and purposes about two-thirds of the way through the book. So I decided I'm not going to yeah. finish this on time if I'm going to be going on <laughs> on the audiobook. So I I just bought the uh, the e-reader version as well. You know, it, was, it came to like 15 bucks or something Canadian. And uh, boy, did my comprehension really, like, improve, like, significantly once I, really? you know, in my interest, definitely, once I got into the text. It's just so much, I don't know, so much more immersive uh, because, you know, just listening to the audiobook, it's hard to just sit there and listen to something without doing something else with your hands. At least it is for me. But what I'm reading, I can just immerse myself completely. So my, my opinion of the book significantly improved around chapter 19. And... Damn, I mean, it was it's it's been a hell of a ride so far. I actually do like the amount of action that Bennett inserts. Um, you know, like just even with the opening scene, like right off the bat, you know, you kind of expect you know a pretty tense opening scene. We get some colorful language, interesting commentary from our main character, um, but she's still in a very nerve wracking situation, which I like. Mm -hmm. Like the, the description of trying to will herself not to sweat so the drops wouldn't fall on the guard's helmet. I mean, that really stuck out to me. It was very, very visceral. And uh, I found that more and more as I dove into this book, I came to appreciate how most authors, now that I think on it, they seem to insert humor as a way to break tension. But Bennett does something else. And I think he like what I think he does is he finds a way to insert humor without breaking tension. And hmm. I, I don't know, I just found his ability to do that uh, pretty unique. I haven't really read somebody else that can quite do that to me, who can keep me gripping the page as I'm laughing on occasion. It's pretty good. Yeah, that's that's kind How'd of a good find? way to put it. Um, I, I I did find myself you know chuckling along at, at a few points. Um, I I was drawn in immediately uh, into this book. The yep. the opening scene was interesting. It, it established I thought you know a good sense of what this world is and what the magic is and who Sanchia is. Uh, and then as soon as you know she opened that safe and, and pulled out Clef and Clef talked to her, I was like, oh yeah, here we go. You know and and. Uh, <laughs> And to kind of go back to what I mentioned in my my recap there, uh, it, it reminded me forcibly of Warbreaker. Yeah. Uh, with with Nightblood, of course, um, a, a talking sword that we get in in that Brandon Sanderson book. And uh, uh, but Warbreaker is not the only thing that uh, reminds me of this book, or or vice versa. In right. Fact. It, it, um, it seems to be like a you know a more common thing as more and more books are coming out. Well, well. So what? Where I'm going with this is is with the world and the setting and the history of it. Um, I know, Rob, you haven't really read too much of the Gentleman Bastards, but 
the world in this reminds me very much of what Scott Lynch is doing there, really? where we have this kind of Italian theme. Oh, sorry, fantasy sorry. Series. When you said Gentleman Bastards, I was thinking Black Company. No, Scott Lynch, of course. I definitely noticed uh, a lot yeah. of uh, um, parallels and, in, in the aesthetic and there. The, uh, the Eldrin uh, in the Gentleman Bastards, you know, this. Uh, um, I, I can't even really spoil anything because we don't know anything about them yet in, in that series, but they're they're kind of this ancient, super advanced magical race that just disappeared and left a bunch of ruins and detritus. And uh, and it's it's this kind of creepy mystery element that pervades the gentleman bastards. And in this it's it's the Occidentals, it's the Hierophants. Yeah. Who and, and while while that's in this it's a little more technological, uh, the you know, the remains um, of the Occidentals and this, there still is a mystical element to it that reminds me a lot of the Eldrin. Um, and, and, you know, of course the thieving, you know, you can draw some parallels, you know, uh, back to Gentleman Bastards as well. Uh, but what is most impressive about Foundry Side, I think, is that it doesn't feel like a knockoff though. It, it does feel like its own thing. I'm enjoying it a lot so far. I, I feel like it's, it's not a, a ripoff. It's not a plagiarization of what Lynch did or what Sanderson did. It's it's its own entity. So. Hmm. Well, on on the subject of of parallels between you know uh, Foundry Side and some other works that we've read, even on this podcast, perhaps. Um, well, I suppose these next two mentions of mine we haven't really covered on the podcast yet. But I want to discuss the magic system, scribing, of sure. course. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to me, immediately I got the impression a lot like soul stamping from Sanderson's Cosmere. Or okay. um, and then I, and as I came to understand it a little more, I, I, I realized it was probably a lot closer to artificing from the King Killer Chronicle. Um, and I, I, I guess this is my question here uh, to you, Drew. You being more widely read than I am, uh, is this like just kind of like actually a trope that I've simply been unaware of until now? Like marking objects with ancient symbols or languages to kind of change how they interact with reality. Yeah, I mean runes. They're runes. It's the same thing yeah, with rune okay. lords. Basically, um, yeah. it, it's there's there's always been you know um, this idea of arcane symbols, yeah, causing uh, magical effects. So uh, in that sense, I guess I was I kind of found it a little boring to begin with, um, but you know, I mean, it's it's still you can still do some really really cool things with it. I mean, his action scenes really stand out. I mean, they are they yeah. are really really uh, adrenaline fueled. I guess I'll use that term there. Um, but I don't know. I just for the for the the first entire half of this book, and again, I I will admit it could simply be because I was trying to consume it on audiobook for the first time, which is nothing I would ever recommend someone do. <laughs> you know, I just it, a lot of it was falling flat for me until I picked up the text version, and then I was you know I was, it was immediately a different book to me. Um, but yeah, like about the magic system, how do you like how do you find it? Do you find it? original do you find it um in uh i don't want to say inclusive um involved do you like how do you find that he kind of uh integrates it into his society into his world building how did you find it man yeah i i actually like it a fair amount um it's it's accessible it's not one of these like really uh obscure kind of difficult to get your head around um you know some of for instance, Brandon Sanderson's magic, like uh, Surge Binding and Stormlight Archive. See, I find those off, more intuitive. Off the bat, it was, well, like, like off the bat, you know, when, when you think about, like, the first half of The Way of Kings, you have no friggin' clue oh, what the deal is it's with true. Surge Binding. <laughs> That's actually Whereas true. in in, uh, in Foundry side, we get a very quick, comprehensive, easily accessible uh, understanding of what scribing is and how it works. And as the book goes on and we get a, a deeper understanding 
I I enjoy it even more because the way he describes how it works, you know, when we get like the fact that these sigils are like in conversation, mm. you know, with these objects and convincing the objects like the way they have their uh, you know crossbow bolts that shoot crazy fast. It's because the sigils are convincing the bolts they're yeah forty thousand feet above ground and falling. So they're accelerating, you know, like at a, at a crazy fate, or or rather, they have already fallen forty thousand feet, and that they're <laughs> not going against gravity; they're going with gravity, and things like that, or, or like the the floating lanterns that are convinced they have a giant balloon inside them, and stuff like that. The descriptions are really, really vivid, uh, uh, kind of colorful in a way, and and then what I appreciate the most though is the way he integrated it into his society, into you know, into the setting and the cultural consciousness of these people where um, it, it doesn't feel like it's just shoved in there. It feels like a natural thing in this world in, you know, that it's e even the people who don't have access to scribing depend on scribing. Like we see in the one scene where um, Ziani uses the Imperiat and, and turns off Oh, yeah, that was sigils. so cool. And even in the commons, you know, like, where people, they, they don't have scribing, but their buildings are scribed. Mm. You know, their buildings are on rotten wood foundations, but they're scribed to think yeah. they're stone. Yeah, how there's this and whole underground sigils... society that still kind of studies and still works for the, you know, the common good. Yeah. I kind of love that. Oh, yeah, yeah, with, like, Claudia and Giovanni. Claudia and Giovanni are awesome, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, like, as far as just the common man... They don't have regular access to scribing, but their lives depend on scribing, even if they don't think about it or know it. And that, and when when Ziani activates the Imperiat, we see that firsthand. How many people's lives are ruined when all the sigils are turned off in a whatever square mile, and you know apartment buildings come crashing mm. down, and carriages crash, and and all this stuff. And uh, it's it's really neatly melded into the world. And the culture and the city that uh, that Bennett has built up here. Yeah, and another thing I really hadn't appreciated, I would, I suppose, I'd say about this particular magic system until I actually really started getting into the text version um, later in in our uh, in our read through for this week was it's kind of ties to artificial intelligence and how it's not mm -hmm. as simple as carving runes or it's not as simple as you know having this 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 great thematic knowledge of the language uh you you also need to know how to program for all intents and purposes program yeah. these things to it's convince yeah you know like for example clef he doesn't just simply unlock the door he doesn't find the 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 mechanism and open it he convinces the door that something is wrong or something is right or something has changed there's a lot of artificial intelligence implications in this magic system which i really wasn't kind of picking up on and, and didn't find as cool um, for the first half of this book, as I kind of started to uh, near the end of our read for this week, I thought it was you well, know excellent. Sorry, go ahead. I, I think that uh, that ties into what we learn about the mountain and how it's yeah. the building oh, itself is alive, that you was know, and, and it's aware of the people. Yeah, for sure. Inside it, and it knows who to give access to and who not, and who to give access to certain areas and not other areas and things like that. And so I think that that theme of artificial intelligence is going to get explored a lot more in part three, which is titled Mountain. Mm. So, <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And still speaking on the magic system and, and, and just taking a, a couple steps back to something you were just talking about, Drew, in, in terms of how he integrates his magic system with his society. I, I do want to mm -hmm. say that I also appreciated how he, like, he, he finds ways, he being Bennett, finds ways to make this kind of really subtle, 
almost commentary on issues in our own world uh, through the implication of this magic system. For example, the confrontation between Ophelia and Gregor, uh, it, it really exemplified that for me. His mother oh. admits that Dandolo Chartered had once been in the business of scribing humans. And she says to him, yes. I quote, It was a different time, Gregor. The Enlightenment Wars were just the beginning. We didn't understand what we were truly doing, neither as ruler of the Durazzo nor the Scribers. All of our competitors were doing the same. If we hadn't pursued this as well, we might have been ruined. Yeah. Wow. Yep. That's pretty eye-opening right there, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I, I will say his kind of social commentary things aren't always as deftly done as that. Um, I did find uh, it fell flat a little bit with the whole, like, women aren't allowed to be scribers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely fell um, a little bit flat for me there. Especially because it was... I totally like, forgot well, about that until you mentioned they it. They were scribers. Like, women were in their ranks and, and hired, and then and then just for no reason... Just recently, yeah. They're not allowed to do it anymore. And it's like, like sure, if you want to make a, a, a societal change like that, you want to have some sort of commentary on sexism. Go for it. But, like, there's got to be a reason in world, Consider right? Like, the implication you know, of suddenly losing half of your scribes. Yeah, like, scribers. <laughs> scribes, scribers, yeah. Like, I just... But, but the fact that there was just no reason for it. That, it was just like, oh, well, like, it happened because the author wanted women to be ostracized in this one thing. Uh, question, really. Like, there was no in-world reason for it. Really quick before we continue with this particular point. Have you finished the book? I forget, because I think I heard you mention no. it in one of your previous newsletters. I can't remember if you said you had finished this book before or not. No, I was I was in the midst of reading it. Oh, okay. Are you yeah, as in... far now as you had been before? Uh, I, I stopped at the end of part two, yeah. Okay, okay. So going from here on out, you and I, we have no further knowledge, both Correct. of us, in this book. Okay, cool. Because um, yeah. for all we know, I mean, there could be a reason... <laughs> who knows like i mean yeah there, uh, there could be but it would just be far, i can't think of one that through, would you know, yeah that would through two-thirds of the book just, there is no perceivable reason yeah um agreed and and again you know, it's <laughs> i hate to always do this i hate to always tie things back to brandon sanderson but <laughs> it's he's okay. always such a good it's example kind of part for the course like, at this point for instance in in the stormlight archive where we have a a very heavily uh uh segregated yes. society where men are not allowed to read and write but women are not allowed to bear arms, and as we as we read through it, like we, we discover that there are good societal reasons. Well, maybe not good, but there are societal reasons for this, and like it was a power dynamic. It was kind of a power play where, like, the men you know wanted control of the shard blades, so they instituted this you know kind of cultural norm where women have to like, cover their left hands and aren't allowed to. You know, and then the women are like, "Well, if that's what's going to happen, then we're going to take over literacy." <laughs> and like, yeah, and it was this, you know, dynamic this, going on. Yeah, that I just don't see here in exactly. Side. That was a dynamic. There doesn't seem to be any dynamic with how this particular sexist implication was just, you know, thrust upon society. It's just like, hey, by mm -hmm. the way, you know, only men can do can can be scribes. It's like, oh, okay, um, and what about all these women? Like, for like, take Claudia. She's She's genius. I mean, she's not, like, quite on Orso yeah. Ignacio's level, but she's, I mean, she's damn good yeah, at what good. she does. And Berenice, even. Yeah, Berenice. Oh, I, I have, yeah, I have oh, something yeah. to we'll discuss talk about, about Berenice <laughs> later. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but 
I don't know. I just you're you're, and I hadn't actually remembered my particular gripe with that until you brought that up. You're right. That particular little in that little bit did kind of fall flat to me. The fact that they just without any kind of context or or, or reason supposedly just decided ah women mm-hmm. can't be scripts. Yeah. I don't know. Um. Well, well. Speaking about you know characters. Yeah. Here, let's move on from from the kind of world building stuff in, into cool. characters. Let's talk about Sancho. Yes. Let's talk about our main character. Cool. Cool. You want to start us off? Uh, sure. Um, you know, she is, in a lot of ways, uh, the kind of teenage female protagonist that, you know, we've come to expect in, in a more modern, like, fantasy. Um, there are aspects of her that remind me of Vin from Mistborn. There are, you know, there are aspects of her that remind me of uh, um, Locke Lamora from Lies of Locke Lamora. No there, kidding. There are a lot of... Um, you know, there there are a oh, lot of see. things that that where she draws like pretty standard tropes, character tropes, um, but it all comes together in a fairly unique fashion. I think uh, she doesn't feel stale. She she feels like a vibrant character. I I don't love her, but I'm at least invested in her story and and uh, you know her future. I want to know what happens next. I think that's you know pretty key. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be enjoying this book as much as I am were I not invested in her. Um, I think the powers that she has are really compelling. I think Bennett's done a good job with, with you know giving advantages and drawbacks to both of them. Uh, but but in, in general, she's, she's fun to read, and that's the most important thing. Huh. Okay. Well... I'll start off by saying that I thought it was an interesting choice. Uh, starting the narrative, uh, at least to, in an introduction to Sancha's character, with a very tense scene based around money. I mean, she's not fleeing or fighting for her life. She's not trying to mm-hmm. escape some prison she, or save somebody. I mean, she's she's whispering 20,000 duvels. 20,000 duvels. For, you know, it's trying to convince herself to, to continue on with whatever crazy course that we're going to find out she's been on. Um, but... And, and going forward, I do. Before I continue with my impressions on her character, I forgot that I actually do have a question to ask you about her character. And, and oh. that question is: How did you feel about Bennett opting not to give a description of Sancia until chapter three? Um, I was pretty okay with that. Yep. Uh, because the the simple fact of what she was doing, uh, in those early chapters. sort of gives an implication of what she looks like to begin with. Uh, you, you get this impression of a small girl, you know, somebody who's able to slip in and out of places undetected. You, you get this idea of a, you know, malnourished, small teenager, essentially. Hmm. Um, and, and of course, there's a little more to it as we discover as we go on, where she maybe she's not as small as we thought. She's pretty muscular. She's strong. Um, but, but I, I didn't have too much of a problem with it. Uh, and, and this is something that's popped up with my own writing and, and I've kind of come to grips with, and that's, it's not always the easiest thing to describe your character right off the bat and not come across, you know, ham fisted with it, uh, without using, you know, like a cliche, like, Oh, a mirror, in on page one or you know, something like that. <laughs> the mirror on page um, one, yeah. 
and and I mean, we do get a scene with Sanchia in front of a mirror in this book. You know, when she's uh, in Orso's mansion, and she's looking at the scars on on herself, and she's and she's having these memories of being on the plantation and being whipped. Huh. And, uh, I, I and don't she, she has this. She she comments on this idea of slaves, heroic slaves who are who take whippings stoically and and without complaint and all that. And she and she remembers how the first time she was whipped, she realized those stories are BS, and that there's no taking a whipping without complaint. Oh, it's, it's she was looking painful. into a mirror when she was too, thinking that. Yeah, oh, yeah, because okay. she was she was looking at all of her scars and she sees her like the whipping scars. You know, I like that you brought up that word stoically because that's actually how I have described Sancia's character as part of my kind of final conclusion here, which we'll get to later. But yeah, stoic yeah. was a word that I definitely had chosen to describe Sancia. Oh, I can see it for sure. For sure. But um, yeah, going on with her character, though, I mean, she 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 reads like a, a more interesting, less aggravating lift to me in a way. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't really relate to her. I don't have many reasons to relate to her character at all. But I, as, as you said, I, I am still invested in her story and where it's going. Um, I, and I think Bennett proves in this exact scenario that you don't really need to be particularly relatable of a as a character for readers to be invested in you. Um, no. Her reaction I mean, to Clef, for example, breaking the door on the on the Campbell wall, you know, and she's like, yeah. <laughs> "What the hell did you do, Clef? What the hell did you do?" And it, it, it to me, it kind of read like she's reprimanding like a a very badly behaved puppy, and I, yeah. I it, like the kind of chemistry between those two characters um, could be a big reason why I like Sancha as much as I do. Um, she's yeah, she's naive, she's a bit immature, she's foul mouthed, but she's she's a realist, she's grim, she's determined. Um, and she's obviously got some much bigger secrets still to be unveiled, I'm thinking. So, yeah, I am still invested in her as a character. I do enjoy her. Yeah, she's, um, she's outwardly stoic, but internally kind of chaotic, mm. <laughs> and I find that fun. Yeah. Like, that's a, a, a fun yeah. character trait. Um, it's, it's more entertaining to be in her head than it is to be you know, in somebody else's head and just seeing her doing her thing. Yeah, it depends and on the I think on that's kind of an inversion in, of, again, to go back to Lyft. Like, I think Lyft is much more bearable when we're not in her head. Oh, yes. God knows that's, um, that is but, fact right you there. You know, so, so it's with Sanchia. No, that's opinion. I should say that's she's opinion. She's fun to read, you know, because we get these conversations with Clef. And and Bennett does a good job of keeping their, um, their relationship yeah. um, uh, moving in a way. Uh, where Clef grows pretty substantially just over the portion of this book where he's, like, remembering things about himself and becoming more powerful, mm. but also becoming more self-aware and uh, and realizing there are going to be consequences to that. Um, but because of that, he'll, like, go into hibernation, essentially, for stretches, yeah. right? And, and when he does that, you know, we feel the same kind of panic or loss that Sanchia does. Because she's already an inherently lonely person, and Clef is finally something, maybe someone, who understands her and can relieve her loneliness. And so when she loses Clef, for whatever reason, you know, it's it, it hits home. You know, it's, it's a big thing for her to have to deal with now that she's found somebody who can talk to her and, and kind of break down her walls losing that conversation for however long is rough on her. Hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, since we're talking about Clef, is there anything else you want to discuss about Sanchia formally before we move on to uh, onto Clef as a character? Uh, I don't have much more about Sanchia, no. Um, I don't honestly have much about Clef yep. either that I haven't already said. Um, I, maybe like a couple of predictions that I'll have at the end sure, sure. about where I think that's going. But I actually have more about Clef than I did about Sanchia. Granted, half of what I just said was improvised on the spot and half came from my notes. <laughs> but I do have a couple points about Clef that I want to, uh, that I want to discuss. Um, but... To start with, obviously, with his introduction, you know, I, I originally paused at the end of chapter three to write, and this is what I wrote on my phone. I won't, I, oh, speaking on my phone, there it is. Shut up. That, uh, I wrote down, <laughs> ich, the key with the voice sounds a bit cliche. All of the reactions from Sancia are pretty typical. And then, of course, how, how it ends with, oh, by the way, I'm Clef. I rolled my eyes. This is going to be boringly formulaic. So then I hit, resume on the audiobook and it begins chapter four with Sancia locking him away and i found i may or may not have had precisely one bellowing laugh at that one i opened my note file on my phone and i wrote okay bennett well played well played you know uh i wasn't expecting that to be the the exact spot that the next chapter chapter picked up on so i i found that an interesting kind of little twist really really quickly and it kind of it made it a little more palatable for me um, I didn't find anything particularly original about Clef's character, but like uh, in terms of how he acts or who he is. But for some reason, it doesn't mm-hmm. bother me, and I feel like it should. Um, but I've decided that he's simply lacking any discernible, heavy sort of quirks that I would otherwise come to expect in, say, a Sanderson character. He yeah. feels remarkably human at times, despite his ignorance of everything that's going on around him. And I figured. Maybe it's because of his ignorance of everything going on around him. And I found Clef asking a lot of the same questions that I'm asking. And I, it, to me, it kind of read as Bennett saying, no worries. You know, this shit is, it's really weird. You're, you're, you're fine. I'm with you. I got you. Um, and then, of course, after getting nothing useful about Clef's past out of him, he turns the question on Sancho instead. You know, she's equally vague and confusing with her responses. And he goes, oh. Now who's got the shitty unsatisfying answers? How does it feel? Yeah. Ah, oh, I love it. I love yeah, it. I will say I appreciate how um, how Bennett managed to keep all of these characters' pasts mysterious, despite being in their heads a lot. This is the same thing with Gregor and Sancia and Clef, and and how I mean. It's not like we're away from them much in this book, and it's not like they're not considering the past. But they manage to naturally hide information mm. without feeling like they're withholding information just because the author wants you wants it to be withheld. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a really natural progression Which, of. Um, honestly, know. I think it's something that Brandon Sanderson could uh, brush up on a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but one thing I will say about Clef is that I liked the motivation he developed in part two where as he became more self-aware and started developing more of a personality he has this thirst to achieve something and to do something big yeah and and it's it's a sort of fatalistic thing because he realizes the more he uses the more he is used the more that that magic comes into play you know the more self-aware he gets and the more powerful he gets but also he'll burn out Mm. that there's a there's a limit on how long this can last and 
so it it's it makes for a really interesting sort of interplay with him where he wants to do something big and crazy but at the same time he recognizes his own mortality for lack of a better word and and recognizes that doing something big could be the end of him so yep. i appreciated that and, and i'm really curious to see where that goes sweet. in part three sweet yeah you want to start discussing gregor sure sweet i guess i'll start us off here um, I think that Gregor may have had the greatest first point of view introduction I've read in years. Yeah. Uh, and whole and I wrote down and I and I quote, "Holy fuck, what a scene! So winning with his manners, despite how the commoners are treating him, and the way mm-hmm. he calmly leaves Antonin's place, and stops, and he thinks, and he thinks some more, and then he just decides to remove his uniform and return to fuck all of their shit up." <laughs> it was it was really it was awesome. How did you th- how did you feel about his introduction? Let's start with that. Uh, I I loved his introduction. Uh, I thought I knew what kind of character he was going to be as soon as he was set up. You know, as yeah. a point of view character. <laughs> I was like, all right, you know, we have our antagonist here. We have our our guy that. Uh, Interesting. Know, I didn't get an antagonistic vibe out of uh, him, even though it, well, well, it was just the way it was set up. Because Sanchi is the thief. Sanchi is our protagonist here. She's the main character. And now we're in the head of the chief of police, right? Sure. They're naturally opposed to each other. So yeah, they're but... naturally antagonistic. And I was expecting through that first chapter that he was going to be this um, ruthless, but maybe kind of kind-hearted or, or maybe not kind-hearted, but like justified person. So that Bennett could like kind of play with our emotions a little bit and be like, are we going to root for him? Are we not going to? Uh, like whose side are we going to come down on between Sanchi and Gregor? That kind of a of a an interplay, and then, and then in chapter two or the second like you know chapter of his point of view, um, I don't remember if that was like four or five. Uh, suddenly it's like oh no no this dude is just straight up another protagonist. Yeah, I mean that- like while he and Sanchi are clearly going to be at odds uh, in the book, it was became very clear that he was a good man. That he is not the kind of person that we're at any point supposed to be rooting against. And I appreciated that while he did have them be sort of antagonistic, you know, against each other uh, through part one, that by the time we got into part two, they're on the same team. They're working together. And maybe they don't have full trust of each other, but they're working together and they're reaching an understanding. And then we get that final scene at the end of part two where Sanchia has refused to do the job and she's sitting out, you know, on the little the hillside looking over the bay and the empty bay, <laughs> the, yeah. the like, man-made reservoir thing, uh, and Gregor comes out and talks to her and tells her the story of Dantua and why he is doing what he's doing and he gets through to her and it's the first time since Clef that Sanchia's had somebody that she can be with and not still feel alone huh and i think that's why she turns around and goes back inside and says this is clef let's do this yeah well because starting with what you what 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 you began with there i'm i'll say that i had actually a very very different um like immediate impression as to you know gregor's kind of uh a role in this narrative i mean i immediately got the uh well since they're so polar opposites i immediately got the whole like star-crossed lovers vibe right off the bat 
Um, Ooh, I don't I get that at all. Uh, I, I got that off the bat, and of course we uh, we don't really see it going. We have no indications at all at this point that it's yeah. that it's going. I mean, he's too old. He's way older than what? Her. Really? I thought he was like her same age. How old is he? Oh, he's like in his twenties. Well, yeah, but she's like twenty one. Right? She's like late twenties. Oh, I thought she was like sixteen. No, 17. no, no. She's twenty one. I think. Ooh, I'd have to double check that. Hold on, I, I could be, I could be totally. Hold on, I, I I'm, tr- I'm struggling to think of what gave me that impression. I can't bring anything to the, to the, to mind. Um, but I don't think she's. Damn, it, I don't. I, anyway, uh, it, let's put that aside for now, though. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I got the that that vibe immediately that they're they're eventually going to end up together. Of course, as I just said, we don't really have any indication at all up to this point that that's going to be happening. Um, but you know, I just, I don't know, I. I, I do really kind of love Gregor as a character. I mean, he's just so unflappable. He's always calm, regardless of what's happening. Um, for example, when their carriage is careening out of control directly towards a huge, a huge populated building, he's just like, oh, dear. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like, come on, dude. Like, you, considering what he is capable of, the fact that he's got such a, such a, a clean verbatim is just like ah uh, it's, it's just i i kind of like that juxtaposition there he's he's such a badass but he's so proper um and he's so polite and he's honestly he's just so kind he's just innocent he's so innocent well well i know no 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 you can't call him innocent no because you know <laughs> going into my next point here i guess is exactly why you know and i want to say that bennett's and i found that bennett's prose really shines when we get points of view from gregor when he's again, as you just mentioned, when he's telling Sancha about his time in Dantua, um, mm-hmm. and I have a quote written down here: "I watched them die of starvation, of suicide. I watched these proud sons turn into anguished skeletons, and I buried them in the meager earth." What a powerful goddamn line that was! I mean, that one's that right there sticks out to me almost as much, or perhaps as much as Arcady Martins quote that we you and i were just gloating over so are glowing over so much you know i am released i am a spear in the hands of the sun yeah i just i i just something about that particular line just sticks with me so much i i thought it was beautiful and i i find that a lot of bennett's writing when he's in gregor's head just really shines in a lot of that same way yeah what do you think no i'm I'm, I'm with you there yeah i i think it it makes a lot of sense him being the eldest son of you know one of these Eldest, I thought he was the youngest. Oh, no, sorry. I remember him specifically well, saying well, eldest. eldest. You're right, yep. Yeah. Uh, well, well, eldest remaining. Remaining, yeah. Because he, he had the older brother, but he doesn't, like, really remember him. Because yeah. he died in the carriage accident. Um, but he's, you know, he, he was raised in, in like, you know, supreme privilege and, you know, wealth. And, and, uh, and you get the impression that there's a lot of etiquette involved in that. And sure. and so it makes sense that as a man whose main goal is to bring civilization to this city, that he would retain his etiquette, despite mm. the fact that he has to work with and against and in these you know uh, uh, you know ruffians essentially, and and work in the midst of anarchy. Um, but I, I I liked Gregor quite a lot. Um, He's, yeah. he, he, he's, you know, like, I, I really came, you know, over to his side where I was like, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of this character. Uh, when he breaks into Sark's room 
when he's like yeah. investigating. Yeah, and, yeah. And then there's that like crazy little scene with the uh, you know the the assassins, the assassins mm. and then Sanchia comes in and saves him and with the flashbang grenade and see that's all that. that's right there. I was like, okay, Bennett's finally going to put them together. They're going to end up in a relationship. That's what made me think about. It. I was like, oh, of course she came to his rescue. You know, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, no, I very much get the impression she's quite young. Uh, she's only been in Tavon for, for three, three years. years. Yeah. So, and, and like, she was young when she was brought into the, you know, to the Scriber's basement there on the plantation. So, I think she's, mm-hmm. like, in her middle teens, like, 15, 16, 17, somewhere in there. Um, hmm. Okay. But, but yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty happy with, with where Gregor and Sanchia are at, both individually and in relation to each other at the end of part two here i think yeah i think same. we have a, a lot of groundwork laid and there are some really interesting directions bennett can take it um yeah but i i want to talk about berenice <laughs> okay good because that's the okay good i was i was gonna hop off of that point into berenice but if you want if you're on that same point i'd love to hear your thoughts yeah because i mean i i like sanchia i like gregor but i love berenice she okay, is okay. by far my favorite character in this book. Uh, whoa, she, whoa, I get a, okay. I get a lot of uh, Steris vibes. I get a lot of Julie yep. vibes from uh, Legend of Korra, if, if you've ever seen that. I um, had the pleasure. Uh, she and Orso have a similar, not the exact same dynamic, but she, she and Orso have a similar dynamic to um, uh, Varric and Julie in The Legend of Korra, uh, where he's like, you know, this sort of eccentric genius and then he has his assistant, long suffering. Is that an anime? Uh, it, it's not technically anime. It's it's an animated show. It's like the sequel to Avatar: The Last Airbender. Yeah, because I, I was struggling to think of why I was, you know, um, thinking of Avatar: The Last Airbender when you said The Legend yeah. of Korra. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's I knew they were like involved somehow. Korra is like the next Avatar in the line. Um, oh. It takes place like a few decades after the end of. Uh, the Last Airbender. Really? Um, oh, that's awesome! I didn't yeah. know that. Cool. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, The Legend of Korra is generally a, a good show. It's it's a little hit or miss in some seasons, but at its best, it's very very good. Um, but anyway, with Berenice, you know, she she has, yeah, um, yeah. she has this <laughs> put upon sort of long suffering uh, efficiency yep. to her, right? You know, she's depended on by this eccentric genius. Maybe put a upon. little too much. I like much. that. Yeah, and uh, but but she also recognizes like, you know, this is kind of where I belong. Like like I'm I'm doing this for him, but also for myself, and and you know she's using it as an opportunity for advancement. She's a, uh, and she's a hard worker. You know, like she's she puts in the time. She she applies her talent, and uh, and and where where it came in, kind of the steris, um thing for me was was how she's she talks about how she's ready for anything she's like i'm always yeah. over prepared like she has did we just break into i can't believe we just break into a foundry with some shit you had in your pockets yeah yeah <laughs> she's just so prepared all the time i did get a bit of stares out of her um, too yeah now i'm not gonna say that she's like I, I don't think she's you know on the autism spectrum or anything like that i i don't get that impression from berenice um, hmm. I think she is fairly well socially adjusted. She's not like a, she doesn't start. Did we like get that from Steris? or anything? Oh yeah, Steris is definitely autistic. What? Uh, hold on, I didn't get that vibe from her at all. I thought she was just kind of really quirky. 
Has, has Brandon um, actually well, come this out? Well, this is this is a this is a conversation for another day. But yes, she's autistic. Oh wow, cool. Okay, I get. I'm still learning new stuff about Sanderson. Look, I even um, in a podcast about but, <laughs> Robert Jackson Bennett's Foundry side, I'm still learning stuff about the Cosmere. Look at that. Um, but but yeah, with with Berenice, you know, she's she's just fun, you know, like yeah, she is. In some ways, she reminds me of uh, Three Seagrass, even. Okay, yeah, yeah, Empire. yeah. I can see that. Like, uh, yeah, she's really she's here. just. Really fun to to read about. Uh, I'm I really hope we get more with her going forward. Uh, she's she's endearing. That's kind of the biggest thing. Interesting. Yeah, endearing. I I would agree with as well. Um, I personally want to say that. I mean, I don't have a lot to discuss about Berenice. I just have some very specific things. So a few. Um, I I want to say that for the first half of what we've read here maybe just the, the entire first half of the book really so maybe a little longer i i was a little suspicious of berenice she's <laughs> too smart not to suspect that sanchia is hiding clef by now which is what i wrote originally but of course by the end of exactly the, the, the scene that we left off on i was like oh okay so you know she now she knows um but Actually, reading her on the page, I, I no longer really got too much of a suspicious vibe out of her. Um, I did like I, a lot of the chemistry between Sanchia and, and Berenice well, as they're breaking into the foundry. There's that oh, line, yeah. you know, that Berenice asks her, still feeling experimental? And Sanchia says, I've done dumber <laughs> shit in the past few days. You yeah. know, I, I, I do love their, their chemistry there. Um, but um, I, I want to say, I think it's funny how you, you mentioned that you were a little suspicious of Berenice. Yeah, yeah, you, you gave a little chuckle um, when I said that. Why is that? Well, I just, you know, compared her to Three Seagrass from Memory Called Empire. Yeah, yeah that's true. Back to the first that's true, I did, I was Empire, suspicious I was of her. like, I'm a little suspicious of Three Seagrass. Oh, you were, that's right, I loved her, that's right. I was the opposite. I was in love with Seagrass. Uh, well, well, I, C3 I loved grass? her, too. You did that in <laughs> I think did I did that, too. too. <laughs> I'm going to continue to do that. Um, but, but not like, I loved her, and I was suspicious of her, because I was like, I feel like I love her too Like, she's too endearing. Yeah, and and I think there's a little bit of that in, in this too. I'm I'm hoping once again that I'm wrong, like you know. Well, but but I I I really uh, <laughs> there's there's just that nagging thing. Like I love Berenice, but there's like some wonky stuff going on inside the Dandolo compo, and like the fact that they had the Ziani had access to like the workshop and you know like the and 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 like how how did they manage to like plant that the the audio scribing you know like there I feel like there has to be some sort of inside job going on and then we got the scene with Ophelia and we find out that Ziani like has their own foundry in the Dandolo Campo yeah like like there's something weird going on there, so. Well, since we're still on on, on Berenice, before we get off of this subject, and I, yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask this question: um, Did I spy with my little eye, perhaps a little bit of eroticism between Sancia and Berenice? There was a moment in chapter eighteen, when and I and I wrote down the quote: Sancia glanced sideways at Berenice and caught a glimpse of smooth, pale shoulder dappled with freckles and tawny, moist hair clinging to her long neck. No, she thought. Stop. Not today. 
What do you think? Yeah, uh, I did pick up on that as well. Um, I I'm getting a little more between those two than I was than I am between you know Gregor. Oh, Gregor, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I don't see there, like the, there's anything there with with Gregor. Um, see, I thought I still I'm I just still really in my don't head know what to almost think the same age. because yeah. Sanchia is like she's almost be, because of her condition with the scribing and like like she can't touch other people without mm. like unbearable sensation and and like. And and so she almost comes across as like asexual. Yeah. Sure. Um, but like but like I think she'll get over that though. to be asexual kind of a thing. Like like makes active choices. And I think that was what that little scene there was with uh with Berenice where she's like Sanchia describes her in that way and then says no. Yeah. Well like, I'm not doing this. And that could present in the future a, a major obstacle that that is going to be, you know, in her life or at least yeah. in the future it could be up to this point for all we know. Obviously she's yeah. telling herself no, stop, not today for a reason. But I honestly think that that whatever's going on with her condition and as the the story progresses, you know, this is I think I read uh today that this is the first part of a trilogy. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I really think that whatever condition she has going on with her scribing as a, as a human being, she's going to get over, and it'll be a major turning point for her character when she gets over this kind of fear of touching other people, or not not just get over the well, fear, yeah, sorry, but fear. when she gets over <laughs> the consequences of touching other people, and it's going to open a whole other world for her, like and and kind of kind of start, uh, I don't know, a puzzle of of her See, trying to figure I, out who she is. I don't know if I want her to, like, have those consequences removed because that makes her powers more interesting. That there's a give and take there. Well, um, yeah, maybe know, this, maybe this she gets like a Sanderson's way to intentionally law. turn it off or something like that. You know, like you know, because because if you remove the consequences and then just give her this ability, you know, and I I don't know. I'm not sure I want to see that happen. Um, hmm. I think it makes her. Or at more least, I hope if it character. does happen, there's still, uh, a, you know, a balance, in mm-hmm. some way. Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, but, but I do think that's, a, you know, it's a good observation. I I did also pick up on that where I was just like, huh, interesting. You know, yeah. where she described Berenice I, in at this no very point glowing she, yeah, way. Exactly. She, yeah. It, it, just with Berenice in that one little moment. So, yeah, um, anything else about Berenice in particular, or do you want to move on to my favorite character? Orso. Orso Ignacio. You uh, you probably knew he was my favorite character yeah, as did. soon as you read I it. Did. Yeah, Oh, my God. I love Orso Ignacio. He's, he's hands down my favorite character in this book. Um, he is yeah. everything that I was kind of... Uh, no, I can't say this for, for a fact, but he is, I think, a better version of what I, th- I, I think Sanderson was trying to accomplish with Cobb. With Cobb? Yeah. yeah. I, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> you know me so well. Um, oh. and, and I don't know why we, we're always drawing the conversation back to Sanderson. I don't want to get the, the the reputation as somebody who just, like, you know, this is a podcast who just compares everybody to Sanderson. I don't want to do that. But we just, we, we know Sanderson so well that it's just, it's a really easy point of, of context. It's a really easy point of kind uh-huh. of juxtaposition. But anyway, going on to Orso there. Um, I just have a bunch of quotes <laughs> written down. Uh, written? Listen to me. Written down from wow. uh, Orso here. Um, but, oh God, he's just such a cool character to me. Accuracy is a binary state. Either it's accurate or it's not. 
So help me if you return again without, and it was some sort of accurate chart, I will paint your bowels with pig's jelly and toss you naked into a hog's pen. And I wrote down, I already like this guy. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously Cobb wasn't as... Colorful? <laughs> Colorful as Orso Ignacio was. He wasn't as, as filthy with his, with his you know, verbiage. But, uh, I don't know, there's just something about Orso's whole outlook on life that I just, I get behind so much. You know, there's, well, what, sorry, go ahead. I think this is actually a good little segue thing to uh, a, a point I wanted to bring up, and that is the cursing in Foundry Side. Yeah, sure. It is this interesting thing where we get a lot of real world cursing right we get a lot of f-bombs and you know and at the same time though he does more of that like sandersonian thing, and it has like harper and scrum and and, you know like in world cursing as well what did you think about that i honestly don't like it too much i think i mean i think scrumming and harping are just bennett's way of getting around using the word Even though he does. The, wait, wait, does he? Yeah, a couple points. I didn't notice that he did. Damn it. Maybe it just yeah. blended in with the rest of Orso's colorful language. Huh. Oh, yeah, well, that uh, kind of changes my opinion on it a little bit. I don't know. Uh, if he, if he mean, does as well, then... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I'll yeah, like, finish. personally, I don't I don't love, like, Harper as a... like. The, it's just, like, kind of an awkward word. Yep. I don't think it, it flows well. It's Aesthetically, the same, same it's issue, like, some of, uh, like, slots in, yeah. in Reckoners. Like, it's I think sparks. they're dumb. Like, you know... Um, sparks, I'm I'm more okay with, and similarly in this, like scrumming, I'm fine with. It feels like a curse word. Okay, okay, yeah, scrumming does kind of feel dirty, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I I just f- found it really interesting how Bennett went for this sort of middle road with with the language in this, and oh, and just kind of went down both roads really. He was just where, like fucking. Well, well, you know, I say middle road because when I you know I off the top of the show I said this reminds me a lot of like a combo of like Sanderson. And Scott Lynch, and Scott Lynch, like gentleman bastards. You know, oh yeah, he's got like I mean, the the language is there, man. Like it, there's mm. all kinds of cursing, <laughs> and then and and it's like Bennett in this book wanted to do something like that, but didn't want to go as edgy as Lynch did. So he created a couple more curse words to throw into the mix. Okay, okay, that aren't as like offensive on yeah. the page, you know. So. And I thought Orso, like, he's a character who, who like, defines that middle road, right? Where he's he's a character that, in the hands of, like, Matthew Stover or Scott Lynch, would be just filthy-mouthed. But in the hands of Sanderson would be, like, cop. Yeah. And then instead, Bennett has Orso, who's sort of this middle road, you know, uh falls somewhere between those two extremes. Yeah. Where he's colorful enough and 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 entertaining enough that he doesn't always need to use profanity as a punchline, but then when he does use profanity as a punchline, it's still amusing. I agree. I agree. God, I love it. Orso Ignacio. Even his something about his name just sounds like like a curse word. Orso, you know? <laughs> I, I just I, I do like it, and I, I like the idea of of, of of a genius who's got a filthy mouth. I don't know. There's something about that that just you know it it really uh, it, it flies with me. You know, there's a moment when Gregor yeah. and Sanchia are confused as to how the whole needle sound device works, and he says <laughs> to them, 
We don't have time to amend your dog shit educations. Yeah, yeah. And then moments later, when they're still express, well, Sancho is still expressing disbelief that such a thing could could even work. Uh, he just says, "You just use some magic ear bullshit to find that damn thing, and a flying man just tried to throw me off the roof." He's got this <laughs> startlingly realistic worldview that's just like, listen, other crazy shit is happening, so maybe some more crazy shit can happen. It, yeah. there's, there's just something so realistic about that character, so raw, that I, yes, that I authentic. found authentic and raw that about yeah. Orso Ignacio that I th- I feel like Bennett really nailed when when he conceptualized that character. And of course, to just to mm-hmm. leave off with with Orso, that last sentence that we read for this episode. Well, bend me over and scrum me blue. Son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. (laughs) Ah, good. Lovely. Lovely. Um, Well, we're we're getting pretty close to, uh, you know, our time for today. Uh, Should we, you want to go into, like, maybe make a couple predictions? I do. I actually, believe it or not, I have a few. I actually think I have, like, four predictions written down. And I also just had, like, a conclusion about, you know, how I feel about the books up to this point so far. Yeah, yeah. Um... Okay, so okay, so let's say a prediction here. Now, this dude, uh, Ziani, I think his name is. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tomas he, Ziani. Yeah. If you if you notice, he waited until he was looking directly at Sanchia before he pressed the button on the device, and I mm-hmm. think I predict that's because he wanted to see if it would affect her as well, and her instant reaction, no matter how she recovered, mm-hmm. just gave her away, and I think Ziani is on to her as a scribed human. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, sweet. I'll I check, like that. I'll check this out. I got something else for you, bud. Uh, next prediction. Gregor Dandoro is actually scribed as well. Um, and yes. he's immortal. Uh, I This was... I was making this exact prediction as well. No kidding. See, we finally... There's, there's, sorry, go ahead. I'm calling total BS that he did not just, like, magically get better from the plague and yeah. wake up yep. in the grave. Like, yep. Something occidental happened. Yeah, something occidental. O. I love that. It's just oh, <laughs> like it's so there's good. something going on with like the the hierophants sigils, like that language, you know, mm. of, of the sigils. Like there's something going on with inscrutable magic that brought him back to life, mm. and like the term revenant is yeah. very purposeful. Yeah, there. yeah. Like, oh man, we think so yeah. much alike. I love this. Listen, <laughs> we finally got confirmation that like from Ophelia. That Dandoro Chartered used to be involved in these activities, you know, mm-hmm. describing humans. And then when Gregor confronted her, she was awfully insistent that she knew he was going to survive Dantua. And mm-hmm. I- I'm thinking that his miraculous survival might be more miraculous than we actually were led to believe. And I will, I would like to point out that is not the only possibly mac- miraculous survival uh, Gregor has had in his life. Everybody else in that carriage died. Yeah. Except for him. Interesting. Holy shit. I hadn't considered that. Holy <laughs> fuck. You just blew my mind, dude. So I think I think we're on the same page with, with yeah. this prediction. Here. Damn, damn, damn. Yeah. Okay, next prediction. The Wand of Crescides. It's been yeah. mentioned three or four times now. That's what I wrote down. Uh-huh. And this was by chapter seven or eight. So this is pretty early mm-hmm. on. I think that we've already seen it or met it. In disguise. Yep. Yep. Agreed? Yep. Sweet. And my last prediction, (laughs) (laughs) my last prediction is I feel like, okay, so Clef's description of this long, long time in the darkness, you know, ostensibly we get it, you know, 
revealed that it's his imprisonment among the other Occidental artifacts. But I think Uh that's misdirection. I do too. I think that his long, long time in the darkness was that gold vein forming in the earth. And it's way, way longer even than we've been led to believe. Hmm. Okay. So he's still... Oh, and I guess I want to throw one more on there. Since we're on the subject of Clef, I don't think he was originally part of the key. I think he was a person. And I think he is still going to be a person. He's going to come out of that prison, that cell that he's in, that Occidental... Oh, you think he'll be, like, re-embodied? I think he will be re-embodied, eventually, in some other way. Maybe not as a human, but in some other way. Okay. So, yeah, that's uh... the end of my predictions. Yeah, all right. I, I, you, you took two of my predictions right out from underneath. <laughs> Good, me. sweet. Uh, my, my only like remaining prediction really is that a, a Tribuno Condiano. Oh, so much about him. Yeah, he's he's not. He's not as insane. He's not as like. Oh, oh, he's not insane at all. I didn't as, think he was. As people think, like he, he's there's, being taken there's over. Something. Oh yeah, there's something going on there. Mm. Uh, and and. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as soon as they just they, they said that that Tribuno Candia, uh, Candiano had gone insane the first time we learned that in his whole house whatever the the entire the, it collapsed the the mm-hmm. merchant the mercantile house I was like oh, he didn't go insane he's too central there's something going on there. Yeah. And you find out that of and, course and Orso also, Ignacio used to work yeah. for him. Yeah, and and more than like work for him like they were friends. Yeah. Like, good friends. And they Yeah, no, that's going to be Orso's like Oh, Orso's yeah. personal character. And they collaborated climax. in the creation yeah. of the mountain. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so overall impressions on the first yeah. two thirds of the so, book. And as I mentioned earlier in the beginning of this podcast, the drawbacks of reading books for the first time via audio is really starting to make itself apparent to me. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's nowhere near as difficult to follow as, say, Kane's Law. Was. No, yeah, not even. Close. But I still, I still find myself zoning out and needing to rewind and listen again and again to catch up, back up with what's mm. happening. And um, I, I do want to say, obviously, this doesn't speak at all about the quality of the book itself. It's just the quality of my comprehension, and thus, perhaps, the accuracy of my opinion. Um, as I was running <laughs> out of time this morning to read through chapter twenty-five, um, and then as I, as I said earlier, I was, I was listening through the week. I was pacing myself to end around the halfway point, but I didn't realize that was only chapter 17, not chapter yeah. 18. And then this morning, I was like, oh, my God, I still have 100 pages left to read. So I decided to buy the book on my e-reader. Um, I got through chapters 19 to 25 on text, immediately enjoyed the book a lot more. Um, and and it, that was right where it was picking up with the scene of Berenice and Sanchia breaking into the foundry and Sanchia oh, yeah. discovering the identity of her client and then the activation of the lexicon and the de- the desperate escape. I was just, you know, like I, I kept waiting for these heart pounding heists that Sanderson described in this one. And there it was, you know. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and I, I just want to end by saying. Bennett's characters are incredibly varied, but they still feel natural. It doesn't come across as formulaic, which if you you know go back to the beginning of the podcast, that was my original concern. You have stoic Sanchia, polite and unflappable, yet incredibly badass Gregor. You have crusty old foul-mouthed genius Orso Ignacio. Naive and startlingly self-aware Clef, both in himself and the ridiculousness of every situation they get themselves into. I'm starting to look, I'm starting, I'm really looking forward to where it goes. And something tells me that despite our progress so far, the remaining one-third of the, of the novel is still going to give us as much or even more to talk about in the next episode. 
yeah, I'm I'm excited to see uh, how this ends up, especially because and you know, granted, this is not Brandon Sanderson writing this book, but it is a book that has a quote from Brandon Sanderson on the cover. Yeah, yeah. And in a Brandon Sanderson book, right about two thirds of the way through the book is where we would start expecting the Sanderson avalanche. And oh, good point. part three of Sorry, this is called The Mountain, and it's going to be, they're breaking into the mountain, you know? They're I didn't actually into... look ahead. Is there a part four? I believe there's five. Oh, oh, Yeah. No kidding. Okay. Um. Uh. So, I I fully expect, like, this this next job, like, going into the mountain, obviously, like, you know, it's going to go... Go sideways. Uh, in it's some gonna, uh, something tells me it's going to be like breaking into the uh, the theater of truth in Kane, but not, oh, yeah, not yeah. as gruesome. Like, it's not not nor near as gruesome. Uh, but but I think like we're going to get into the climax very very quickly here, and it's going to be one of these long sustained crazy really? Sanderson avalanche type climaxes. I am I'm very excited for the opposite. That. I think it's going to be still Ooh. well. I, obviously, we're going to get a climax in the mountain. And I think it's going to slow down, and then there'll be a final uprising near the end. Interesting. Okay, I guess we'll we'll have to revisit that. Next yeah, we week. will. Um, but but yeah, my overall thoughts on this book, though, um, I'm very very surprised by the quality. Uh, I had no idea I would enjoy this book this much. It was a fun departure from like, uh, you know the the other like newer book that I read recently was a memory called Empire, which I loved. Yeah, awesome. This is again a very different kind of book, very different writing style. Um, it, this is more of like a rollicking, fun, action-packed thing. What where a memory called Empire was a more like introspective. Yeah, it, uh, it was it was a step back it, kind of observation of the beauty and, of and and was a lot more focused on language. the writing and, yeah. and the craft of Arcady Martin in that. Um, and so Foundry Side has just been a blast to read, and I'm. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just surprised. Uh, I, I do need to ask: Have you read uh, the Divine Cities by Robert Jackson Bennett? Nope. Okay, yeah, I, I haven't either. I don't even um, know what that is. Uh, it's, it was his first trilogy. Um, he has a trilogy heard, out already. Yeah, I've heard really good things about it, and and I never, yeah, you know, I never got a, around to reading it. But now I'm like, oh well, maybe. Yeah, something else to put on the maybe list. Maybe I gotta go check this out here. Like, yeah. You know, as my like, you know, maybe not immediately for the podcast, but maybe that'll be like my summer reading, you know, for the next month. I can't like, believe you have time for out reading that. outside of the podcast. Holy crap! You <laughs> oh, are oh, inhuman, dude, I'm my four friend. Books right now. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> anyway, but but yeah, yeah. This is this is a it's living up to the hype, and I'm very happy, you know, to get that, and it, and it makes me, you know, a little more curious about checking out other books that Sanderson has supplied cover quotes to because I, I haven't read any other books like that you know I, I know of one other book um, I can't remember the author but it's called like an alchemy of masks and mirrors um, and, and there's a there's a Sanderson quote on that book uh, didn't he uh, quote one of his former students books oh probably Brian McClellan okay okay like powder mage um, uh, but yeah so that that's that, that's kind of my my thoughts on on the first half here. I think this is sure, so sure. Well, well first executed, two tightly yeah. woven, fun, fast paced book so far, and and I do not expect that to change in the second half. Yeah. So, sweet, sweet. Uh, I agree. 
Yeah, so let's let's uh, move into the final draft here. Okay, I'll start us off up. since I have the boring choice once again. I had mentioned a couple weeks ago, maybe it was just last week, I can't remember. Um, I was on the ketogenic diet. I was I was just foregoing beer in favor of water. I've I've kind of slipped a little bit in that. You know, keto. Uh, if you're if you're sticking to actual keto, it's just so hard. I I've started allowing a little bit more sugars and carbs in my diet, not a lot more, but enough to allow for dark liquor. So for today, making its return <laughs> for the podcast. The Alberta Premium Canadian Rye Ooh, Whiskey, mixing it with a little bit of water, you know, it's just, it's, it's just, I don't know what else to say about it, you know, as, as a whiskey, as a rye whiskey, it's obviously got a very, very strong flavor profile, kind of hard to um, sip on its own, unless you, you know, mix in a little splash of something else, make it water, don't you dare mix it with anything else. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean... God, it's just it's a, it's a reliable choice. If I'm drinking a whiskey, it's either going to be a Crown Royal, probably going to be an Alberta Premium, or if I'm feeling pretty ambitious, I'm going to be drinking a Scotch, usually a Glenfiddich. But for today, the Alberta Premium definitely did me good. Nice. What about Very you, dude? Nice. So, uh, I actually need to <laughs> amend something. I I had a note here to talk about this earlier in oh, the podcast. I okay. forgot to do it. Oh, uh, it is up. Talking you- about the city itself right and, the city. and this this uh, socioeconomic setup going on where there are these four uh, mercantile houses uh the the campos that dominate and and the driving force behind this plot really is greed right it's, yeah it's it's unchecked greed and that's where this whole plot with the imperiat and tomas ziani's uh you know adaptation of occidental scribing technology is leading where he wants to just take over and, and you brought it up as well with that scene with ophelia talking with gregor about the slave plantations yeah and like and and her excuse saying like oh well we had to have slaves in, in these plantations or we would have fallen behind and yeah and it's i mean like that's such a a callous thing to say you know like as if well it draws back to a lot of, of like the cold humans, war doesn't it yeah, like, the, the enslavement of fellow humans is fine as long as you can keep pace with your, like, financial competitors. Yeah. Like, um, and so so that was necessary for, to explain my beer for today. Oh, um, was it now? Yeah, I, I'm I'm drinking a uh, an Imperial Stout aged in whiskey barrels from River North Brewing Company in Denver, Colorado. Uh, this is a, it's quite a good beer. Very whiskey heavy, I will tell you that. And it's... Really, I will. I will. I will be honest. I have not finished this yet, despite the fact that we've been going for like an hour and ten no minutes kidding. here. No kidding! Damn, uh, I drank half of my fucking Mickey already. Well, I was at the Weldworks Invitational Festival yeah, yeah, yesterday you had from that. Uh, uh, out in Greeley, Colorado. Um, Weldworks is is one of the best breweries in the world at this point, and we're very fortunate to have them here. And that this festival they put big on is praise from Drew McCaffrey right there. Insane. I mean, like, if you know craft beer if you're getting into craft beer like go go look at like the untapped list of all the beers that were there i mean like side project voodoo perennial horace three sons like all these crazy breweries flying from around the u.s and bring their best beers so, i mean i had so here's my question how do you that, feel today like, then my friend oh well i mean that's what i'm saying i'm struggling to finish this <laughs> like i had so many like bourbon barrel stouts and like you know spontaneously fermented wild ales and like i mean it was it was a crazy day yesterday but but so i'm i 
I picked this one up because it was just too good to pass up name-wise for the themes in this book. All right. And this is the barrel-aged variant of Avarice. Avarice. Oh, my God. Such a quaint word. Something I had to look up when I was 19 when I read it for the first time. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got a little story for you. The first time I read it, I was probably 9 or 10 reading uh, a Star Wars book. Uh, it was The Back to War, I think, by Michael A. Stackpole. It's one of the X-Wing series. And there's a Star Destroyer called the Avarice. And and I was like, oh, what does that word mean? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, there's the, the, the Virulence and the Avarice were the names of two Star Destroyers in that the book. The quote and I was like, it was well, those for are me. awesome words. For me, <laughs> what it was, it was a quote that I read. And it said, love is a stranger in the house of Avarice. And I was like, what is a- Avarice? Mm. What the hell is that? And it's just greed. Greed, yeah, like material gain, greed. yeah, just like something that runs rampant, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was a, a good, appropriate beer for for Foundry side here. I, I will also say, I am trying to get a beer lined up for next week. Oh, it to get one perfect. lined up. It is perfect. For it this. is perfect. But it is very difficult to get your hands on, and I'm trying to set you know up what? a trade right now. True. Andrew McCaffrey, right now, what I'm going to tell you, I showed you a beer a couple days ago, didn't I? I showed you a picture of one that I saw in the local liquor store. It wasn't there when I went there yesterday, but to counterman or counterman to counteract that point, I'm going to get the most useless, dumb beer, <laughs> and I am going to provide that excellent point of juxtaposition with my choice. I'm going to try to do that next week, and it's also hard to get a hold of because, like I said, I didn't see it when I went there I yesterday. Will- I will do my best. I'm telling you, like this is. We're gonna, I, you're gonna have I, the perfect have beer, and I'm out, gonna have like, the dumbest beer. I'm gonna have to break out some like crazy stuff from my cellar to uh, to trade for this thing. Like it, this is not not you like your cellar? everyday beer. Like you cannot the beer I'm trying to get. You cannot buy in a store. Like you have to go to this brewery when they release the beer, and like it sells out Holy right away. Crap. Like, but thankfully, they've done a lot of different variants of it, so there's there there's a fair number floating around on like the secondary trade market and stuff. And yeah, I'm trying yeah. to trying to line up a trade and get it to where I can get the beer in time for next weekend. Sweet. So. Holy crap. I really hope I'm, I'm hyping this up so much. I really hope I can pull this off. But, Sweet. All right. Uh, but yeah, so this has been episode 25. Oh my gosh. 25 episodes. Quarter dude. century of inking out loud. Um, yeah, and uh, next up we'll be finishing off Foundryside. Um, if you uh, if you want to get early access to that episode, if you're enjoying this book as much as we are, uh, check out our Patreon. Uh, we have got a bunch of awesome benefits, including one tier that will give you early access to our episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So take a look there. As always, I am your host Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host Rob Santos. Yo. And as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, everybody. Peace.